The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, September 6th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I watch a few Senate hearings in my time, yet nothing readies you for the moment when the junior senator from New Jersey responds to the senior senator from Texas. Like a disgruntled Sigma Nu might address one of those annoying Fidel's who just spilled a beer on his good shirt. Bring it, bring it. What you got, bro? You want to throw down? We'll throw. Well, this showdown was about an issue that was actually quite recondite and technical, though in the service of confirming a Supreme Court justice whose decisions will be really easy to understand and have a lot of impact. So Cory Booker and his fellow Democrats were objecting to the documents that they got to see, but they couldn't introduce because they were classified and they were confidential for senators only. How it works is that Brett Kavanaugh used to work for the Bush White House and a Bush White House lawyer gets to say, yes, that is confidential. No, that is not. Cory Booker and the Democrats were saying he was abusing that privilege. And they weren't saying the documents had any huge smoking guns within them. In fact, Their argument was the opposite. They were saying the documents were pretty standard fare from what you would expect from a Bush administration lawyer, maybe a little bit damaging to said lawyer, Kavanaugh's case, but they should be released to the public at large. And so Senator Booker said, I'm going to release them. And if you want to try to do something about it, well, you know what he was saying. He was saying, bring it. I'm saying I'm knowingly violating the rules. Okay. And so the Republicans took to the whip. Majority whip, John Cornyn. That is irresponsible in conduct, unbecoming a senator. Fellow Republican Lindsey Graham seized on the idea that it was unbecoming a senator. In fact, he argued that Booker was very interested in unbecoming a senator and becoming a president. And that was his entire motivation for the thing. If you want to be president, which I can understand that, it's hard. And what you do will be the example others will follow. And then Lindsey Graham spoke up for the constituency, I'm sure, that was on everybody's mind during these hearings. People wonder, are these hearings turning into a circus? And I want to defend circuses. (laughs) Circuses are entertaining, and you can take your children to them. (laughs) This hearing is neither entertaining nor appropriate for young people. Now, Some of my colleagues who I respect greatly are trying to make a point. I don't know what that point is. Yeah, it was hard to figure out at times what the point of all of these theatrics were, but I will try. The specifics of this argument was relatively small bore. It was a fussiness on the part of Kavanaugh or the Bush administration, by extension the Trump administration, to releasing documents that should be on the public record. By the way, it was revealed that these documents were in fact set to be opened up anyway. So some parts of the Booker bring it thing were a little bit, I don't know, dramatic. But the Democrats were trying to turn this into an angry referendum on how the process of the Kavanaugh nomination was going because they couldn't really touch the real threat. And the real threat is the fact of the Kavanaugh nomination and what seems to be the inevitability of the Kavanaugh confirmation. And when it comes to a full Senate confirmation vote, the Democrats are a lot less eager 
to bring that on the show today. We use the spiel to suss out who wrote that anonymous New York Times op-ed. But first, sometimes there's news out of Washington that seems less than wacky, crazy pants bananas. But that doesn't mean that news isn't important. I saw a story today. The third ranking official in the Department of Defense is being shown the door. After only nine months, Secretary Mattis was so displeased, it's being reported that this official will be fired. Now, I had not heard of this guy. I had not even heard of this position, the chief management officer of the Department of Defense. So what I did was I called upon someone who did. Defense News' Aaron Mehta up next. John Gibson, the third in charge of the Defense Department and the uh, CMO, will be reportedly let go for not doing his job well, which led me to the question, who's John Gibson? I googled it. Turns out he's a goalie for the Anaheim Ducks. All right. This at least shows that the John Gibson who we're talking about hasn't been in the public eye. And I understand there's a lot of crazy news going on, but I think this might be significant. So let's talk to a guy who knows. And joining me is that guy, Aaron Mehta, who's the deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. Welcome to The Gist, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. The position that Gibson, I guess, still fills as we talk, but might not within 24 hours, is the CMO. What's that? Is that a new job? Yeah, it is a new job. So a lot of companies obviously have chief management officers and their jobs essentially to make sure things are running effectively, make sure things go smoothly, make sure everyone's doing what they should be doing. The Pentagon actually hasn't had a CMO position for a long time. There was a deputy CMO, which was a relatively mid-tiered job, which had some oversight over that. Uh, and that was actually a job that Gibson in 2017 was confirmed for and put in. And then Congress said, you know what? The Pentagon is a big bureaucracy. The Pentagon, in some ways, people compare it to a large company, although I think personally that's a flawed assumption in some ways, said they should have a CMO. The Pentagon's being audited finally, which is long sought. The Pentagon spends a large amount of money. We need somebody to really make sure this is all going on and to find efficiencies. So Congress said, we're going to take this deputy CMO role, we're going to make it a full CMO, and we're going to specifically say, you are now the third person at the Department of Defense. You are now the guy whose job it is to find efficiencies to save money for American taxpayers. Yeah. That's the job that Gibson was given. Who is he? Where does he come from? Was, is he a military man? Is he, was he a CMO at some private company? Yeah, he has some private sector experience. He also, uh, in the last decade, served as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Management Reform, which is a, a kind of similar job with the Air Force, and did financial management with the Air Force as well. So he's one of these D.C. people who uh, comes in, does a couple of years, the Pentagon or state, then leaves, then comes back, and then leaves again. There's a lot of folks like that in the D.C. sector. Coming into this job, he had pretty good reviews from people who knew him. He said he's a pretty smart guy, and he certainly had some ambitions. It seems like those ambitions may not have paid off quite the way that he or Secretary Mattis thought they might. Does any of this have to do with Donald Trump himself? I don't believe so. I think this is more reflection of uh, the nature of the Pentagon. Again, the fact that you know this is a slow bureaucracy, famously slow, and it can be hard to change things. Now, if you want to look at Gibson himself and how he came in that office, 
you can trace a line back to some of the problems the Pentagon, specifically in the national security community, has had staffing up. Hmm. Uh, there was a famous letter that came out during the election from a number of leading Republican people and a lot of people who would have filled out a normal Republican administration's Pentagon. Uh, it's called the Never Trump Letter. Essentially, yeah. they said, we will never support Donald Trump. Those people are all blacklisted. And that meant that when the Pentagon was starting to be filled out, Mattis had a very, very small group of people he could actually go to with experience in these issues. So, you know, was Gibson somebody with experience? Yes. Was he somebody with the experience specifically for this job? Maybe not. Maybe there was another candidate who would have been better, but who was blacklisted. So this person in this job, Gibson, hasn't worked out. What about the overall goals that Gibson and the job were supposed to be getting at? How, uh, how has Mattis been doing? You know, Mattis came in with a little bit of a goal of changing all the things that had bothered him in the Pentagon when he was there in uniform. Mm. And I think what he's discovered uh, is that change is hard. You know, war fighting is hard, change inside the building, getting people who are set in their ways to change, that's really difficult. And there's also been some things that have sidestriped him a little bit. Uh, the Space Force issue, that's something that Mattis and actually President Trump on paper have said they were against until the president came out there and said, okay, we're doing a Space Force now. All of a sudden, the secretary and his officials have to start changing what they're doing and reorganizing themselves, reorganizing money, focus, to suddenly stand up a new branch of the military. So there's a little bit of a uh, chaotic factor, as there is with everything in this administration, that's perhaps kept Mattis from being as effective as he wanted to. You know, it, it's interesting that he made this call this quickly. To me, you know, I think that's a sign that for whatever reason, fair or not, Mattis looked at what Gibson was doing and said, I expected this. I'm not getting this. I don't have time to waste because I need the money that you were supposed to save me to reinvest in combat issues. Uh, that's been a big, a big trend for Mattis, a big thing he's talked about for the last year is we're going to save money and put that right back to fighting America's wars. But look, Gibson, I interviewed him back in May, and Gibson told me that the plan was to find $6 billion in savings in fiscal year 19 and then $46 billion over the next five years. That is real money, even by Pentagon standards. And he seemed to think that would be stuff, some low-hanging fruit that we'd be able to do. At the end of the day, clearly that didn't happen. If he went to Mattis and he promised that, it was probably optimistic. And if Mattis comes back and says, hey, where's my $9 billion? I was planning on using that this year. Gibson says, well, we actually haven't found that. It doesn't shock me if that's what happened, that Mattis would turn around and say, you know what? I'll find somebody else who does this. Look, I, I understand valorizing private experience, but it seems to me that someone, even from the aerospace industry as Gibson was, that doesn't seem to be the right fit for understanding how the Pentagon works. Well, and this comes back a little bit to the, the question of the Never Trump letter and who is available to fill this out. If you look at the people who are in top Pentagon spots, the deputy secretary, the number two in the department, is from Boeing. The policy head, who's sometimes considered, you know, the four, five person, very important job is a guy who was working at Lockheed at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the acquisitions head worked at another defense company. The Pentagon is always a mix of all these different trends, and it's just more so with the Trump administration and with a lot of people who are in jobs that in a different administration they may not get or may have gotten a lower tier job. But because that kind of top layer of Republican national security expertise was largely blocked, people had to fill these spots. If you look at the mid-tier, the assistant secretaries of defense, people whose names you'll never see in the news, but who are really important at getting things done, a lot of them came from industry. Right. Here's the reason. 
they didn't sign the letter. And to interrupt, in past years, were those jobs filled by former military men or recently former military personnel? You'd see some former military, but a lot more professional national security hands. So people yeah. who you know might come from think tanks or people who have served in the foreign service and then went into an administration. A lot of civilian control. Um, not a lot of industry. This was something that John McCain, uh, his last year when he was active in the Senate 2017, every hearing almost, he would bring up and say, I'm going to let you through, but you're going to be the last industry person. Mm. Then another industry person would come up, and <laughs> that would be the last industry person. But McCain made it really clear he was not happy with this. How long have you covered the Pentagon? It's uh, about six years next week, I think. Is there a way for you to pronounce it? I'm not going to give you a binary, but on the continuum of functional to dysfunctional, how has it changed under President Trump? It's largely similar, and I think that's because, uh, obviously, Mattis comes from a Pentagon background. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joe Dumford, has been there for you know, the last two years of the Obama administration, the first two years of this one. Those folks have been there for a long time. Remember, these are non-politicals by design. That said, the biggest change is less about the operations of the Pentagon, more about how it's conducting operations abroad. There was a longstanding concern and complaint from people in the military about the Obama administration saying, we could barely launch a missile strike on some ISIS guys without running it all the way up to the National Security Council and getting a sign-off. Right. President Trump very clearly said, we're going to take the gloves off. He said, Secretary Mattis, you run your wars as you need to. Mattis, in turn, who, by the way, is one of those people who had complained about the NSC being too hands-on during the Obama administration when he was in uniform, Mattis turned around and said, okay, you guys on the ground, you go ahead and conduct the war as you see fit. That's led to a large number of uh, an increase in the strikes being done in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, it's led to some situations uh, where the Pentagon hasn't always known what guys are doing on the ground. The Pentagon will say, look, they're there for a reason. If they mess up, we'll take care of that. But at the end of the day, they're the commanders on the ground for a reason. We're back here. There's been some concern raised in Congress about that. Um, we had a, uh, a speech yesterday from Adam Smith, who is the top Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. If Democrats take the House this fall, he becomes the, the chairman of the House. He said very clearly, we're going to do more oversight. We have gone too far away from oversight. There are things happening. He pointed to the Niger issue where four Americans were killed last year. That shouldn't be happening and needs more clarity. Do you think this job at this level is an impossible job? The CMO job? Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's thankless <laughs> anyway. Thank, yeah. Look, this is a inside the Pentagon job. Most people will never even know this job exists. Most people certainly will not have known that John Gibson was the guy who did it. Why is it important, though? Look, the Pentagon has more money than a lot of countries do. It is a massive, massive cost for American taxpayers, and it does massive, massive, important things in the taxpayer's name. When the Pentagon gets $716 billion in the budget, somebody's the guy in charge of counting that up, making sure it's being used effectively, trying to find ways to, hey, maybe we only need $700 billion next year. Maybe we can go into $650 because we found savings. If you're a taxpayer, this guy finds savings, the Pentagon says, hey, we can take a little less money. That's a win for you. Well, performing the, I don't know, impossible, but heretofore thankless job of senior Pentagon correspondent with Defense News, heretofore, because now I thank him, is Aaron Mehta. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me on.
And now the spiel, an op-ed written by a senior official in the Trump administration has set Washington afire with speculation and from the White House with recrimination. So what constitutes a senior administration official? We're trying to figure out who this person is. That's what we have to go on, a senior administration official. There's really no set definition, and what definitions or attempts at definitions there are are quite expansive. Mara Eliason says it could include up to a thousand executive branch members who need congressional confirmation. Others have said or suggested that the phrase should be relegated to fewer than a hundred people who are assistants to the president, deputy assistants to the president, or special assistants to the president. These are the people who get slightly higher salaries and designated parking the White House. But then again, no one would say, oh, a cabinet secretary, a full-fledged cabinet secretary wouldn't be a senior administration official. Probably that cabinet secretary, second or third in charge, would also qualify. So what do we really know about the author of this op-ed? What do we know about what the president knows about the author of this op-ed? Yesterday, the president was asked, hey, who wrote this thing? And he said this. We have somebody in what I call the failing New York Times that's talking about he's part of the resistance within the Trump administration. Aha, that's a clue. He's part of the resistance. Trump apparently had reason to believe this person was a he. But then on Morning Edition today, White House spokesman Raj Shah expanded the drag that Um, You have an op-ed signed by one anonymous senior administration official uh, making a series of allegations or claims that are really just his own opinion or his or her own opinion. And then again, Um, I think that this senior administration official should take the cloak off and admit who they are and resign and uh, let the public see, uh, you know, who he or she is and what his or her vantage point is and Okay, let's review. We know the White House believes the writer of the op-ed uses the pronouns he or she, but not they. That could be meaningful. Of course, we also know a very, in fact, the most senior administration official does not talk to Raj Shah. Raj, I hardly have, you know, I don't speak to Raj. Hmm, maybe that could turn Raj Shah into a disgruntled person, eh? But he's not senior, or not senior enough. And the public at large went hunting for someone who was quite senior. Media elites and citizens began playing the parlor game. Does anyone have a parlor? Is it used to play games? If it has decent Wi-Fi, I guess I could play Pokemon Go. But you noticed, or these citizens did, they noticed that the word Lodestar was written in the op-ed. And it turns out that Mike Pence likes to use the word Lodestar. But today, Mike Pence said, Well, I think it's a disgrace. The anonymous editorial published in the New York Times represents a new low in American journalism. And I think the New York Times should be ashamed. And I think whoever wrote this anonymous editorial should also be ashamed as well. But you hear the wiggle room there? First of all, they should be ashamed. So again, he's muddying the waters and undercutting the president, just like this op-ed would have. But also, it was an op-ed. Mike Pence keeps talking about an editorial. So when he talks about an unsigned editorial, maybe he's not talking specifically about the one I'm talking about. Maybe he's talking about the New York Times staff editorial, Andrew Cuomo is the Democrat's best choice for governor. That was probably something Mike Pence thinks the New York Times should be ashamed of. And I can see why Mike Pence would think it's shameful to endorse Andrew Cuomo. Mike Pence always had a bit of the Miranda about him, don't you think? And as as far as Pence saying the Times ought to be ashamed, sure, for our country to be an American 
The vice president then went on. Anyone who would write an anonymous editorial uh, smearing this president, who's provided extraordinary leadership to this country, uh, should not be working for this administration. They ought to do- Maybe this is all a plea for help. Were his eyelids blinking a contradictory message during those statements? Okay, let me be honest. It is lazy and ridiculous to think that Mike Pence wrote the op-ed because one word in it is similar to a word that he uses. Are you familiar with the favorite words of most senior administration officials? Really? I'll name the senior administration official. You tell me, oh, that's the word this guy always says. Let's start with... Avram Berkowitz, special assistant to the president and assistant to senior advisor Jared Kushner. When you read in the op-ed, at best, he has invoked these ideals in scripted settings. Did you say, ah, that's Avi Berkowitz talking? In fact, Avi's mom owns a little stationery store in Margate, New Jersey named Scripted Settings. Classic Avi Berkowitz. Do you know much about the word choice of Cyril Sator? Senior Director for Africa at the National Security Council. He's a senior administration official. When you read in the op-ed the phrase, quote, the erratic behavior would be more concerning if it weren't for unsung heroes in and around the White House, did you say, ah, Cyril Sater, Senior Director for Africa at the National Security Council, always orders the chicken pesto wrap for lunch and will tell anyone listening that the wrap is the unsung hero of the hoagie world. You did not know that. You do not know specific words that specific senior administration officials like to use. We don't know who this person is. We can only wonder. It's a fun game. We can imagine Dan Coats getting back at the president for scheduling meetings with the Russians behind his back. Or maybe Kirsten Nielsen seeking revenge for the time Trump screamed at her in a cabinet meeting and forced her to lock all those babies in cages. She never wanted to do that. And you know, that ruined a string of dinners in fairly pricey but not pretentious Tex-Mex places in the D.C. area. Although, Kirsten Nielsen, her office at least, wrote today, quote, Secretary Nielsen is focused on leading the men and women of DHS and protecting the homeland, not writing anonymous and false opinion pieces for the New York Times. Uh Aha. Again, see the wiggle room there? She's not interested in writing anonymous and false opinion pieces for the New York Times. These types of political attacks are beneath the secretary and department's mission. See the wiggle room there? She's not interested in writing anonymous and false opinion pieces. She's interested in writing anonymous and true pieces, which this was. And yeah, it's beneath her to have to stoop this low. Look what you made me do. Somebody now put that baby back in his cage. The gist was produced by two anonymous people who are not the popular resistance of the left, but they do object to the frequent use of Lindsey Graham clips. They want you to know there are adults in this edit bay. Also, Danielle Schrader and Pierre Bienname say hi. A senior, in fact, an executive producer of Slate Podcasts in private has gone to great lengths to keep bad decisions off our podcast air like, say, two-and-a-half-hour free-form improv podcasts or the kind of podcast where someone less informed than the person who actually knows reads a Wikipedia entry and they're kind of tipsy at the time, but they also are telling 300 inside jokes about the subject matter. So it's not really a podcast, it's more like a community. Also, Steve Lichtes, he's a really nice guy. Not for nothing, just wanted to say that. The gist. What are our words? What are our giveaway words? 
We got posit, fraught, discourse, tautology, mucus, competent, lodestar, and lobstar. You got me. Oom peru, de peru, de peru, and thanks for listening.